Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said for the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better than, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The word of the Lord. So there's this old Jewish folk tale, you know, about a house in the woods that you can't find if you're looking for it. But if you're ever lost in the woods, it finds you, not like it walks, but it's there. And there are people who uh, pack their lunch and get their maps and go out determined to arrive at the house by the end of the day, but they can never get there. Some people even go out in the woods and try to get lost, but that doesn't work. Except if when you're trying to get lost, you really find that you are actually lost. Like the sun's going down, and you realize suddenly that there's no way you can find your way back home by yourself. No way. And it's getting dark, and the floodwaters are rising. Then the house finds you. If you're not lost, you can't be found. Or something like that. So Jesus says in this sort of kickoff summary of the ministry he's about to undertake in his first sermon ever that Rachel read in the middle of, he, in the very beginning he says, he starts it all out, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst. You could hear this like, well, isn't God good? God's going to help the sad, poor, weak people, and don't they need it? You could hear it like that and then move on, thankful that the meek and the wounded and broken will eventually be comforted. But I think that Jesus is actually trying to say something that's a little more disturbing than that. Something about what the kingdom of God is like, what it might be like to be a follower of Jesus, something about who we are as humans that we need to hear. The promises of the kingdom are for these, the poor in spirit. Jesus' disciples look like this. They're meek, hungry, mourning. It's not the sort of characteristics we usually strive for. I mean, if you were picking a team like any sort of team, Olympic chess, political, technological team, any team at all to take on a project or create a program, you want the most spirited, the successful, and the bold. You don't pick the meek and the hungry and the mourning and the poor in spirit for your team. Unless you want your team to lose. Of course, cutthroat corporations with a profit motive don't choose people who display these characteristics, but neither do most good organizations that just want to move forward. Nonprofits, churches, ministries. If you want to join the professional ministry, for example, you don't display these characteristics. You should hide hide them if you have them. I think we've all learned this about how to get along in the world, you know? I mean, it's okay if the kingdom of God includes these sorts of people, but the leadership, the disciples, if the gospel is going to have any sort of following the people in charge or whatever, can't really be the sort of people that are poor in spirit, meek and mourning, reviled and persecuted. I mean, imagine promotional literature for the kingdom of God based on the description that Jesus provides in the Beatitudes, like a poster or a brochure or maybe an entire book with images of people all broken and crying and suffering. Come join our team. The poor in spirit and the meek and the thirsty in the morning just don't work that great for promoting a program. Jesus' whole first sermon is actually very off-putting. Really. Impossible demands for sad and broken people. If you're not lost, you can't be found. If you're not sick, you can't be healed. If you're not hungry, your hunger can't be satisfied. But is being lost and sick and hungry, something that you strive for? Something you aspire to? Something you work to try to attain? To be poor in spirit is the same as to be poor materially in some ways. You lack something or you lack many things. You can't feed yourself. You know your need because you live in need. It's not something that you can contrive to be or a state of being that you can manufacture. Maybe it's like if you're not poor in spirit when Jesus starts his sermon, then by the end of it, you will be. After you've plucked your eyes out and cut off your hand, or just soaked in the possibility that you will burn in the fires of hell. 
language in the beginning is pretty clear, though. Jesus doesn't say, everybody, be meek. He doesn't say, everybody, be poor in spirit. He says the meek will inherit the earth. He says the poor in spirit are those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. It's a description. It's not a prescription. It's a promise. It's not a command. Jesus' whole sermon here is weird that way. He's either describing something that you don't do on command, like mourn or be poor, or he's describing something that you can't do, like purity of heart. Purity of heart means a single-minded desire for the kingdom of God. It's complete freedom from mixed motives. It means to will one thing. Well, come on. I mean, maybe I should just speak for myself here, but to will one thing? In any given circumstance, I will like 25,000 things. My motives are a mixture of infinite variety that I can't possibly even sort out. I want everyone to be happy, and I want to be happy. I want to do the right thing, but I feel that the right in any given situation is at best an ambiguous possibility, given the culturally constructed nature of everything. I don't know if it's physically possible for me to will one thing. I don't believe it's in the nature of biology. I believe that it's simply not possible. We are animals, after all, really. And I don't even mean that in a derogatory way. It's great to be animals, to have bones and blood and skin and walk around on the earth and eat and live. But purity is not a part of our biology. In the verses that Rachel read from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does this thing with the law, this thing where he sharpens it really significantly. He says, you've heard it said, don't kill. But I say, don't even get angry at anyone, or you'll be liable to judgment. Don't even insult someone, or you'll be liable to the council. If you ever even say to anyone, you fool, you're liable to the fire of hell. As the offense decreases from killing someone to merely insulting them, the punishment increases from merely the counsel to the hell of fire. You've learned not to kill, but I'm saying don't even think one little insulting thought. It's just as bad. Well, really? Or is he trying to show us something? How long can you go without having an insulting thought? An hour? Five minutes? I bet you're having an insulting thought right now. (laughs) You know adultery is wrong, but Jesus says here, if you even look at anyone lustfully, pluck out your eye and throw it away. I don't really think he means it. Of course, it goes without saying that I could be extremely wrong, but I don't think he wants us to pluck out our eyes and throw them away. I think he wants us to see something, actually. Thus, all this hyperbole. There is no way that you can do this by yourself. It's not even a possibility. You can't be good by yourself. 
There's a Bob Dylan song where he says, I hate to break it to you, baby, but you're going to need me because you can't make love by yourself. And I think that's maybe sort of in here somewhere. I mean, of course not. You can't love by yourself. You need an other. The kingdom is not something you do. It's something that you receive. You don't find it. It finds you. You don't arrive there. It picks you up and carries you home. Why would the gospel be like this if it is? All grace and mercy and being found instead of being good and getting it right and finding. I think maybe Jesus shows us we can't do it not because he wants us to feel not good enough or wretched and vile, but because he wants to show us who we are. And he wants to show us that we don't need to hide it. We are truly and honestly very needy creatures. We are not self-sufficient, unconnected individuals. We are humans created in love and for love, in relationship and for relationship, a part of an intricate web of relatedness. We need so much all the time. We need air to breathe and food to eat. We need gravity, the sun, dirt, trees. We need a certain amount of living bacteria in our bodies in order for our digestive systems to work. We need other humans to create us. We don't spontaneously become. And I think this is true all along. Far after we're born, as long as we live, we depend on other human beings to create us. Disciples are those who know their need. And because we depend on each other so much, women need men to not objectify them not just to not commit adultery. And men need not to objectify women, but for the good of our interconnected beings. Because we depend on each other so much, you need not to call other people idiots. They need you not to do this. Self-sufficiency is not actually a possibility. It's a total lie. We need something greater than ourselves, greater than our individual goodness, God. It's not about ourselves being righteous. Who cares? What difference does that make? Could that possibly make? It's never about you alone, because however much you might feel alone, it's actually completely untrue. The life that is all around you, forever sustaining you, maybe God just doesn't want us to miss that. The kingdom of God isn't a team that you can join or not join. It's what's coming. It's what is. It's the truth about humanity, the bottom line, the truest thing. We need each other. We need God. We need so much from all of creation all the time. We need love, and it's messy. And it's painful. I don't think Jesus' sermon is meant to show us how wretched and bad we are, but how connected, how unself-sufficient, how much we need each other, God, and the ground. You cannot find the kingdom by embarking on some personal quest. You cannot get there on your own. You must receive it. Because it has everything to do with the other from whom you are receiving. Doing it without an other is not even an option.
If you're not lost, you can't be found. But the thing is, who is more lost than the people that don't think they're lost at all? Than the people who think they have no need? So maybe we're all covered here. I think that the requirements for grace are not that high. Everybody gets in. All the you shalls in the Sermon on the Mount can be understood as the promise of you will. I think this is a grammatical thing, something about the indicative and the imperative. It says somewhere a little later on in the text in Jesus' sermon, you will be perfect. Literally paraphrased, that means you will be directed to the goals that are God's goals. You will. It's a promise that we will all will one thing. Not personal piety, but love all around the kingdom justice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. God is already changing the condition of the world, restoring us to love, finding, bringing us all back home, and we are invited to believe in that or to trust in it even just a little. And maybe even just a speck of trust in that can change the way that we exist in the world. 